Hey there, my name's Mark McCartney and welcome to the What is a Good Life podcast. Over the last two years, I've interviewed over 150 people around this question, not to provide a universal answer, but to help you to find and define your own answer to this question. While I'm also trying to share with you what I perceive to be more genuine expressions of the human experience. On the 23rd episode of the What is a Good Life podcast, I'm joined by Robin O'Brien, who is on the Forbes Impact 50 list for her work at the intersection of food and climate. The best-selling author of The Unhealthy Truth, the founder at Serona Ventures, providing impact capital, advisory and consulting services, and an adjunct professor at Rice Business. In this episode, Robin shares moments of adversity in her journey from confronting the food industry in America over the use of chemicals in the food supply after her own child experienced an allergic reaction. She discusses the importance of surrounding yourself with the right people, of not numbing ourselves to pain, of paying attention in our lives to moments where our calling can be revealed and having the courage to follow that. This episode provides plenty of inspiration as to where this life can take us when we decide to act in the face of sizable challenges, when we appreciate the lessons or clues that adversity is teaching us and how a life of service and collaboration can help us overcome many obstacles. I took a lot from this conversation as I'm sure you will too And if you enjoy this podcast, please like, share and subscribe as I'd greatly appreciate your support at this stage of my podcasting journey. So without further ado, the 23rd episode of the What is a Good Life podcast. Robin, thank you so much for joining me here on the What is a Good Life podcast today. Uh, I've been really looking forward to this this conversation and I'm very grateful for your time. Thank you for having me. As I tend to open these conversations up with Robin, it's with the question of, is there a question that you're trying to answer as you move through life? Yeah, I think to me, the question that has evolved or sort of risen to the surface is how can you serve at your highest capacity? Where can you be at the highest service? And so I think each of us are given sort of these God-given, gifted, universe-gifted skills and talents that make us uniquely us. And the opportunity is how do you you in your life give those gifts back? How can you be of the highest service with the unique gifts that you have in your life? And to me, that is is to me the ultimate calling so that you get to the end and all the gifts that you've been given, you've been able to give back and they've been bestowed back out into the world in service in some capacity. And I think for each of us, that's going to look entirely different. Thank goodness. That's the whole point is not to be like (laughs) anybody else. Um, And I think it's, you know, it's a really exciting evolution to be a part of personally. Well, that's a, that's a beautiful opening sentiment. Um, I love this idea of being bestowed with these gifts and then bestowing them back to the, the world, the planet, the universe. Can you can you kind of give me an insight into just how that that question has evolved for you or how you've this has kind of evolved in your life in terms of being in service? I, th- I mean, I think, you know, when we realize you know, we know what we're passionate about, you know, when you can silence the noise, you really you know what you care about, you know, what gets you really excited, you know, what you get really passionate about. I mean, for some people, that's dirt bikes. For some people, that's food. You know, for some people, it's music. What is that thing that just lights you up? And that's, I think, part of who we are at our core. That's part of the light, you know, that is this internal light that will shine. Um, And then you have the opportunity to surround yourself with people that are either going to help enhance that light and and lift it and elevate it. Or there are people, Brene Brown uses this term, the candle blower outers. And I think it's a really good term because we all know who those people are. They're sort of the naysayers. They're the ones who are 
the, the wet cloth that are sort of dampening that spirit. And so as you kind of move through, you have this opportunity to intentionally identify and recognize these different types of people and choose who you surround yourself with. And it's not to say you surround yourself with yes men or yes women. Um, that's, not, that's not necessarily the answer either, but it's you surround yourself with people that can see this higher calling and can see this greater service that you can provide. And they help you accomplish and achieve that. Um, you know, through my life, I've had a lot of naysayers, as you can imagine, taking on industries that I've taken on. There have been so many people that sort of with a dismissive, well, good luck with that, Robin. And I just think, thank you for showing me who you are, put you over here. And I know who not to lean on when things get tough. And then there are the others that are just completely behind the people that you just feel have your back. And I think probably one of the greatest ways that you can show that you love someone is that sentiment of I've got your back. That is just the greatest way to show up for anyone, a parent, a child, anybody. Um, and I think, you know, as you move through, you really start to, if you're clear and you're not, you know, putting too much in here that's noisy, um, you really can start to identify who those people are. And I've come to think of that as sort of a supportive scaffolding that we all need. Uh, leaders especially need it. As you're growing into a new leadership role, you need this supportive scaffolding around you as you elevate and become, you know, in this higher service, in this higher capacity. And it's really similar to any building or, or architectural piece that's been constructed. There is a supportive scaffolding that goes around it as this thing of beauty is constructed. And I feel that it's the same for us as people, as we grow, as leaders, as we grow, what is that supportive scaffolding that you have around you? And a huge, very, very important piece of that scaffolding are the people. As someone who's in food, food is clearly a really important piece and how you learn to take care of yourself is an important piece. But I think, you know, we really cannot forget how important the people that we choose to wrap around us as we grow and evolve and become are incredibly influential on whether that's going to be a strong foundation or if it's going to be weak. And in terms then of how, how would you kind of, what would you say was the, the starting point almost in, in terms of your focus on, on service to, to, other, to other people, to other groups? How would you say that kind of evolved? You know, it really, um, I've been in service my whole life. Um, I think back to high school and I did a service project in Ecuador and I chose it as a child because I knew I was coming from a place of privilege and I knew that I was ignorant to certain things. Um, and I had an opportunity to serve in that capacity. And I realize now that the profound impact that had on me um, and to realize that, you know, there is a lot that you, you can do. There is a lot of opportunity to participate. Um, have always had a very, very strong faith. And so there had been a lot of service and exposure to service work through that. My grandfather and my great-grandfather were both um, Anglican ministers. My mother's from New Zealand, so they had churches in New Zealand. Um, but that really didn't connect for me because I didn't know those, those grandparents. They died when my mother was young, so way before I was born. But I was giving a speech at the University of Colorado probably 10 years ago, and this woman came up to me afterwards and she said, I felt like I was in church. And in that moment, I knew that my ability to sort of deliver these, these sermons, these speeches, whatever you wanted to call them, I all of a sudden understood that that was the grandfather that I had never known in me. Wow. 
And it was a really, really powerful personal moment. It was powerful for her too. And just in that moment, I remember exactly what she looked like. She was this tiny little thing. And when she said it, it was just this aha moment where I was like, oh, it's my grandfather in me. That's how I know how to do it. And that is when I realized the gift. And I think, you know, when I talk about these gifts that we have, whether it's creativity or art, or telling you know, all these different things or gifts all of us have that have sort of come down through these generational ancestors and elders and all this wisdom um all of a sudden with that gift i thought you know this is a gift and people have often said like it's easy to listen to you and it's it just it is a gift it is an absolute gift and so for me to be in services how can i give that back and how can i use this ability and this voice to inspire people to participate in these changes to feel like they're coming from a place of of strength and love and power that it isn't fear-based it isn't you know scarcity it's none of that um and i do you know i think that was probably that was probably one of the most powerful moments and then you know our capacity to love i think you know there's there's intellect and it's incredible it's sort of like the data but to me the love is the fuel and you know so i've really learned to protect that it is this incredible source and this incredible force uh, for good. And, you know, to make sure that I'm in a place where there's just total clarity and alignment. Um, and that's not always true. You know, there are days or plenty of days where it feels <laughs> like a giant knot between like my head and my heart and just gone, you know, and in that tension, I know I'm not operating at my best. So I have learned like, what do I need to do to step back and untie this, you know, so that I can be totally in alignment and operating from a very clear place as I move forward. Um, and in order to know that, I mean, you have to have operated from that knotted place there for a while. And so, you know, I think sometimes you hear these interviews or these podcasts and it's like, oh, these people have all this wisdom and they're just bestowing it on everybody. But it's like, it has come from some pretty dark places where you've had to go in and do a lot of really deep work. And that is a big piece of advice that I would offer is do not be afraid of those opportunities that in the heartache and in the darkness are some of the most valuable lessons. And there's so many things you've said here, like love is the fuel and this moment of, of, um, of this lady coming up to you and said, I felt like I was in church. You know, even what you're kind of saying at the start, trying to, how can you figure out to be of your highest service? It seems then that there's so much uh, paying attention to certain moments in life. Like a, it's almost like this co co-creation or co-revealing. Oh, 100%. Yes. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the dangers that I see is when you're paying attention, you're not just seeing the good things. You're also seeing the things that hurt. And yeah. I think, you know, a lot of my work began because I could see the pain that was happening in children with allergies and autism and ADHD and all these things, you know, like it was born out of pain. Um, and that sensitivity and that empathy, you know, it's an incredible skill, but oh gosh, you have to learn how to manage it, you know? And so to really think about um, the ability to, to not only identify where things are, are, you know, these wonderful moments are happening, like that woman coming to me, but also these, these really the heartache and, you know, to, to, to say that what you are grateful for is the experience across that entire spectrum because of the lessons that are offered across the entire spectrum. And I would say that some of the most valuable lessons have been learned in some of the deepest heartache. Um, and I also think that's where you really learn what you are made of. You know, you don't know what you're made of as long as everything's surfing along fine. 
Um, you yeah. learn what you're made of when you are really put to a very extreme test and challenged. And I think for a lot of people, they don't want to put themselves in that position. Um, and again, I understand like not to judge that. Um, however, if you're not, if you're not pushed to grow, it's, you know, those, those are really the growth opportunities. There's a quote by uh, Carl Jung that says uh, something like the the branches of a tree can only reach to heaven if the roots go down to hell <laughs> or, you know, just this kind of this idea of almost like the maximum expression or experience of our life. It almost seems to be intrinsically linked with with some degree of suffering. I, and, I and totally, totally that. believe that because I think, you know, our capacity to love is directly tied to our capacity to hurt you know you hurt as deeply as you love and um and i think you know to really recognize the lessons that are in that heartache um i think for me you know when those moments would happen and i would just be in this incredible pain you know and the tension of sort of being pushed or birthed into this next opportunity um, I would, I remember laying awake at night, like thinking with my heart, just wide open to the universe or the sky or whatever was above and, and just say, okay, okay. You know, I'm here. Teach me the lesson I'm supposed to be learning. I understand that I am supposed to be learning a lesson. Please let me learn it quickly, you know, um, and to start to identify those pain points as the lesson opportunities. And then I think you would sort of, you start to reframe it a little bit and you're not intimidated by it as much. And when those pain points come, you don't immediately think, oh, I've got to numb this. You know, I've got to somehow get, a, get away from it or run from it. And I think in our society, unfortunately, um, we've been conditioned to sort of numb. You know, people numb with all kinds of different substances and all kinds of stuff. And um, instead of really saying, like, pain is actually a normal part of life and all of these emotions are a normal part of the human experience and they're all designed to teach you something. And I think if we were taught that at a younger age, and understood that that all of these emotions are just part of the whole human experience and we really shouldn't be labeling some good and some bad then we can use those those emotions as teachers uh, i i couldn't possibly agree more it's um i i think almost the expectations we have that you know sadness or sorrow will not be coming upon us or that there's a that there's something unnatural about it or we should sh- like we should usher them away as quickly as possible I, I completely agree. It kind of completely, completely obstructs the the potential lesson that we could be learning. And as much as maybe we don't want to be learning it at some particular point in time, you know, when, when you mentioned there, just the kind of maybe lying awake and kind of almost asking for guidance or a sense of what the, what the lesson to be learned is here, you know, just when you touched on it earlier about how you know, you even started to explore um, allergies when you saw suffering that was happening around you. Can you kind of give me a, a sense of maybe moments even in, in that process where, or even just to give it a little bit of color around that and then maybe pro, uh, examples of of the tests that were inherent within that process as well? That was a really hard chapter. Um, you know, when I was, my background is finance and research. And then I hit pause on that to have these four children fully intending to go back into investments and finance. And when my youngest child was diagnosed with food allergies, that part of my brain was wanted to understand the data. So I really dove into the research and the data around what was happening to American children. 
and did a bit of a comparative analysis because my mother's from New Zealand of, okay, well, that's what's happening here, what's happening in Europe, what's happening in Asia, what's happening in Australia, you know, and you could see what was happening to American children. And the grief in that was tremendous. And so then, because I didn't have a science background, but I had done research, you know, all this research, I started reaching out to different scientists who were actively involved in the space, you know, asking them questions about the research, similar process that I'd done as an analyst. And um, it was fascinating, you know, to learn that no human health studies had been conducted on the way we had just created this massive transformation in our food system. Um, there had been all kinds of concerns raised in other countries and countries like France and New Zealand were so concerned that they didn't want some of these products even planted in their soil. And then here in the US, yeah. you know, not only had we planted everything, we put it in the food system without labels and all of our trading partners were labeling everything. And this was 15 years ago, you know, before a lot of people were talking about this kind of stuff, before we had this kind of transparency and apps and scanning devices for food. So when I first started talking about it, um, no one wanted to believe it. And they really wanted to label me as somehow this oddity, you know, that was connecting too many dots. And that isolation during that period was so intense. It was so intense. And I think it's also why as a leader now, especially for emerging female leaders, the question that I will ask those leaders is how can I have your back? Because in the early years of my work, there were very, very few people that I could say had my back. It was like I was walking a plank by myself and everybody was watching to see what was gonna happen. And when you are in that kind of persecution and isolation by yourself, you know exactly what you are made of. And somehow coming through that intact and having to defend myself essentially by myself, um, I realized what kind of fortitude was required. I also had incredible sensitivity for the fact that not everyone would be able to stand in the face of that kind of fire the way I had. So I had a compassion for the people that hadn't been raised to be as strong as I was raised to be. Um, and I recognized that I had a role to not only help educate, but how could I also help inspire people to be braver in their life? How could I create a sense of support for other leaders as they emerged so that there were more of us because we were stronger together. Um, I've been a singer my entire life. And the analogy I had was, you know, one voice is absolutely beautiful, but the depth and breadth of a choir, that sound, that hmm. harmony is so much more powerful. And I saw early on that we needed a choir. It wasn't going to be one vocalist who was addressing this. And so I always came at it with this sense of, and this need for, collaboration. And I think because of that, ego was never centered in this for me. Um, you know, the, the intimidation, the fear, all of that was very present. Um, and, you know, realizing how destructive ego could be if I had tried to move and had this sort of own this whole thing by myself, I would not, there's no way I would still be talking about this today. Um, so I think, you know, in that isolation, I realized how important collaboration is. And often I will say today that the skills that are required going forward in the face of climate and all these other things are courage, collaboration, and creativity. And those skills are not sort of the typical execution ops skills that you tend to focus on and hear about. 
Um, but I think that as we move forward, you know, cross collab collaboration across industry sectors is going to be really critical. So, you know, a lot of that wisdom was born out of that early, that early isolation. Well, that's, it, it sounds like such an incredible situation to be in from the point of view of you're doing something that's clearly just even out of care for, well, not only just children generally, but your own children, even first and foremost, is where the, it kind of spawned from, right? Like, yeah. what the hell is going on here? Well, and it was, you know, then I'd go to the park and I'd see these kids and having looked at the data around childhood cancers in the U.S. and diabetes and autism allergies, I mean, like the data was so powerfully, hideously strong that I'd be at a park and I'd think, how many of these kids, you know, not just the, uh, my, my family, but like how many of these oh, kids... Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Um, but I, I, I was meaning even though like just how you were doing something from a perspective of like service and support and then to be met with isolation and confrontation. Oh, um, yeah. And like true, it was sort of like crucifixion. I mean, it was like the, it was the 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 um, denigration, the marginalization, the cond the condescension, being a blonde mother of four. I mean, they just really were they were ready to just have at it. And um, again, the friends that stood beside me and behind me at that point in my life were so, are, are, they are part of who I am today. I don't think that, hmm. I don't think that anything is separate at that point because um, who I am today is because of the way those friends drew out the very best of me during one of the worst times of my life and the way that that weaves into you, the way that their, their words become part of your fiber. And again, it's why, you know, this focus of mine of how can I, how can I have an, an emerging leaders back? You know, what do people need in terms of support? Um, the emotional support that's required, especially for women, it's totally different. Um, yeah. I mean, it really was like, it was a lot of persecution in the early years and it got to a place where I thought, you know, you're hitting on something if they're persecuting you that aggressively. And, um, and it was truly just because of love that it, you know, I kept going. I would look at my kids and I think I just have to keep going. And I would see the children and friends and think I have to keep going. Or a friend whose husband was diagnosed with cancer, you just, you, you somehow, you have to keep going. And I think I've done a lot of sports all my whole life. And, I've always had such respect for professional athletes and the way that they really take care of their bodies as this asset and this resource. And I started to think, you know, we really should be doing the same in business that like any entrepreneur, any founder, any leader, this vessel, this vehicle that we're in is an asset that's on your balance sheet and your fiduciary duty to your shareholders is to take care of yourself so that you're operating at your highest capacity, that you're thinking clearly when you're under stress, you know, when you're in these really tough situations that you're operating as clearly as possible. And that was a lesson that came out of that chapter because, you know, it just, that stress of the early years ate at me a lot. Yeah. And then I thought like, if, if I break this, I can't keep going. So I've actually got to learn how to take care of this vessel that I'm in so that, you know, I can continue to serve at this highest capacity. And I think to me, that should be foundational to any kind of business leadership work. How do you, uh, when you just look back on, on your life and almost like, okay, I'm with Invesco, I'm an analyst, and this is the path that I'm going to go back in. How, how do you kind of view that 
just not only the the adversity that you initially had to to face and obviously the 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 wonderful out, uh, outcomes and just in terms of how it shaped your life and and the directions it took you in as well do you sometimes sit back and just kind of think this is this is a bit wild like or, or how how does this come to be sometimes yeah no i don't because i think i feel like i'm still at the beginning of it there's still so much that we need to do and you know, it just feels like there is, it really just feels like the last 10 years maybe have just been the warm up lap. Um, and wow. so, you know, it's, it's not, oh, it's not some like heady thing. You know, it's, I'm very, very grateful that I know my purpose. You know, I have a lot of people come to me and they're like, you're so lucky that you, you have su- such purpose and in, in, in all this passion and, um, I'm very grateful for that. And it, I can see where when that, when that opportunity, that calling was really pulling towards me, I think it's in that moment where people can numb out, where they can just say, I'm just going to go have a bottle of wine. I, I can't do this. Or I'm just going to do, I can't do this, you know? And, um, and so it's that right at that intersection of like, you know, when, when it's when it's hitting you, you know, and you you either can accept, you can either pick up the phone and accept it, or you're going to turn down the call. Um, that's another point, you know, sort of intersection. And um, and I think it is really hard when you are surrounded by a lot of naysayers to say, you know what, I'm going to do this anyway. And if I fail, because I think a lot of the reasons people say, oh, I'm not going to do this because what if I fail? Um, when you fail, because you will fail, that's part of success. Um, what are the lessons in that failure that are going to contribute to your success? And so it's really learning to reframe that failure um, as part of the road to success that you're going to find. I love this idea, though, of um, almost the world or the universe providing you with almost like calling cards or moments where it's it's very explicitly asking you a question and almost do you want to take up the the challenge or your purpose and the sense that in in some cases pay because i think often people are almost not tormented but they're frustrated by a lack of purpose or meaning in their lives Mm -hmm. but almost from what you're saying there it's something i've heard before as well almost this idea that no the the world will show you what it could be it's just whether you want to attune to it or, or even to, to take up the challenge. You do. I mean, I think, and this is where courage comes in, is um, when, when you are brave with your life, it shows others how they can be brave with their lives too. I have a dear friend from childhood who's an author, and she uses that in one of her books. She says, you have to be brave with your life so that others can be brave with theirs too. And a lot of the keynotes that I give are really keynotes on courage. And it just happens, the storyline happens to be through the food industry. And I love that I'm in a place where I can speak about that now because initially when I was invited to talk, it was to really do this expose of the food industry. And you know, I've gotten to a place where it's like, this is really a story of courage. And my journey happened to be through the food industry. Yours could be through tech. You know, someone else's could be through nonprofit work in Africa. It just like, it doesn't matter where it is. But if you really start to identify where these opportunities are to be braver in your life, 
those are really your breakthrough moments. And then I think as you break through, you then find yourself connecting with other people who are breaking through too. And so, you know, they say like, you know, who you surround yourself with is probably one of the most important determinants, you know, of the quality of your life. And um, I think it really is, you know, if you are sort of sitting in the status quo, you're going to stay in the status quo. And I think fear, it often feels to me like a seatbelt that just keeps you locked in that status quo. And so I've gotten to a place like when fear shows up, because it, it still does, you know, but it's like, okay, here's fear and it's showing up, which means that this is me right at the edge of my comfort zone. Cause that's usually when fear sort of locks in. It's like when you're right at the edge of your comfort zone about to do something, fear will kind of shut in and to identify it as sort of like the sidecar that's like, okay, here you are. And I'm going to examine this, you know, like, do I actually need to be afraid here? Is this just sort of status quo trying to kind of keep me in my safety zone? And that's usually what it is. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of energy that comes from stepping out of our comfort zone and, you know, the whole notion of how the universe will conspire. Um, I think that's really true too, when you really are intentional, but you know, it all gets back to, again, sort of this vessel that is you, how clear is this? How clear is this running? You know, is it, are you servicing this vehicle that is your, that is you, you know, are you taking care of it? Are you fueling it with the right things? Are you hydrating it with the right things? Is your mind clear? Um, and that all to me should be part of leadership work because I think that's how you're able to really have clarity and operate at your highest capacity. Because if it's sort of mucked up and polluted with different things, it's really hot. It's hard to get that kind of clarity. And when you when you think of that process for yourself, uh, you know, obviously you're talking about um, physical health and, and uh, you were mentioning activity earlier. When you said in terms of clarity for your mind, then is what supports you in, in, in that aspect? You know, for my entire life, running has been sort of this moving meditation. I mean, since I was a child, I knew that I got incredible clarity running and that I also had a lot of creativity in my four kids. Like there have been times where I've gone for a run and I have literally walked in the door, walked straight to a notebook and I'm just like, don't talk to me. And I'd like, I have to download everything that came out on that run. Um, that has been a go-to since I was probably 10. And then, um, you know, more recently, I really had to explore meditation. And as somebody who had all this energy and sort of all this, all this stuff that was bubbling all the time internally, the thought of actually sitting there for even four minutes in meditation sounded absolutely horribly painful. Um, but to right. really have embraced that practice over the last year and realized that, you know, just even the just simplicity of breathing and what that actually does for the brain and to really, you know, everything we do is, is somehow either nourishing us or extracting from us. And so when you realize that your friendships and the people that you have around you, they can either nourish or they can extract. Even just breathing, like oxygen, it can either nourish you or it can be like, or it can just be this panicky thing. And so just the intentionality of all of it, you know, food clearly nourishing, what you're drinking, it's either nourishing or extracting. Um, and I think, you know, just that intentionality and it's not to be perfect all the time. I mean, nobody's perfect all the time. Um, I often said, you know, with children's health, it was 80, 20, like how, you know, to have a little bit of grace and flexibility in your schedule. Um, but again, I think, you know, there really are a lot of different things people can do 
for that clarity of the mind. Um, and then I think, you know, every day, and this is something I've tried to teach my children is, you know, are you choosing peace? Or are you choosing chaos? And what are you, you know, what are your actions right. creating? Are they creating, are they creating more sort of fluidity and a frictionless flow or are they going to create chaos? Um, and that, that takes a lot of personal responsibility. And, um, and I think, you know, that's, that's part of it too. You said, uh, I love this idea of personal responsibility, but you also said something I wanted to go back to earlier, which I, I really enjoyed as well, was that what helped you get through this process or even this persecution at times was that it wasn't about ego. And I just wanted to know, was was that something that, is that something that uh, you've typically, how you've typically approached life? And if so, how, how did you cultivate that or did that feel like something innate? Gosh, that's a really good question. I think I struggled with a lot of insecurity when I was younger. So I think I saw, I could observe ego because it didn't feel that I had that kind of confidence. Um, and so it was really in sort of an observational way initially. Um, and then, you know, early on in my career, when I was at Amon Invesco and I was sitting on the desk and we'd see management teams every day come through the office, pitching their businesses, pitching IPOs. Um, that was an incredible experience to really get exposed to hundreds of leadership teams, all different styles. I mean, every day we would sit in probably five or six meetings with just management teams, management teams, management teams. And you'd have one that you just feel like they're amazing. You'd have another one where you're like, I just want to go to the bathroom and wash my hands after shaking hands with those guys, you know? And so I think that exposure was really, really formative to sort of see all the different types of styles and that probably was one of my first experiences with ego and leadership. Um, and then, you know, to follow those companies over several years and sort of see what would happen, um, it became really clear that, you know, yeah, ego ego can serve to a point and then it can also have a, a, a very dark side to it. Um, and I just felt that from the very beginning of my work, because I had four children, they were all so young when I started this, I knew I couldn't do it by myself. And that it had to be done with a team of people. And I just, I think intuitively, I felt that like, no one wants to work with somebody that's just, it's all about them. So I felt early on, like if I had created just this tiny little stage with the work that I was doing, the more that I could put people on that stage and profile them. So I had like food allergy heroes and features that I would put in my newsletters. And it was just, how can I keep showing that there are a lot of us? Um, and you know, maybe it's the choir experience. I don't know, but it's like, I just knew from the very beginning that it had to be an incredible diverse group of voices that were speaking to this. But I, I loved the idea that you said, uh, things are either nourishing or extracting and, and almost seemingly how you approach then this, uh, this team or collaborative effort was to put as much nourishment into the into the environment as possible in in supporting and and enhancing other people's positions in order for them to ultimately i guess support and collaborate with you as well yeah and i just to me you know i think maybe i just knew i couldn't do it by myself and um and so i think initially i thought like there just needs to be more there needs to be more of us and then as the team really grew bigger, there was joy in that too, um, which was surprising, I think, for all of us. And that joy is so contagious. 
And then that becomes something. And so I think, you know, initially there was a little bit of fear and terror, like, oh my gosh, I'm really going to have to do this. And then somewhere in that shift, there was a momentum shift. Then I know exactly when it was. My TEDx talk was published in, I, I gave it in February of 2011 and it went online, you know, a few weeks later. And the first executive that I heard from was the CEO of Nestle's frozen food division. And he said, I have three children and you can say what I can't say. And in that moment, wow. my, everything shifted, everything shifted. I thought if this is the response from one of the largest multinationals in the world, we're going to be okay. And he said, I was, I'm so worried we're losing market share. People don't want this stuff. Uh, the employees aren't proud to sell it. I'm afraid we're going to go from five floors in this building to four to three to two to one. I'm going to be laying people off or they're going to be leaving. Um, I met with that team. They were in Ohio and they were just, they weren't proud of what they were doing. So they couldn't sell it. And um, it was just, that was a profound experience. Had experiences like that with senior executives at General Mills um, and other companies. And that was when I sort of had to release judgment. That was another big lesson and approach it more with curiosity. And so instead of saying, you know, these are bad people working in these big companies, it's cu the curiosity of, you know, how do these people inside these companies actually feel about this? And where yeah. might there be an opportunity to collaborate with some of them? And where could we create something in a really courageous way? And that shift coming out of that TED talk, you know, that was really in the spring of 2011 was when everything shifted. Can you describe to me just what, what it was like for that to have the impact that it had? Because, you know, coming from a, you know, coming from a different industry or a different sector and then starting off on this mission to suddenly have this level of traction and then this level of engagement of, uh, you know, someone from Nestle calling you and saying, you're saying what I wish I could, uh, what I can't say. Was that like, did you take that in your stride? Did it feel surreal or, or how, how were you operating through that? I felt such an enormous sense of relief. I felt that there yeah. was a profound understanding and there was this mutual respect of how do we, how do we tackle this together? Um, and he is still a very good friend. Um, all of those executives that reached out in the very beginning are still very, very close. Um, they have all sort of said it was sort of, um, it just changed their lens, you know? And I think, I think it was because I wasn't coming at them like, you're the bad guy, you're the problem. It was more, we have inherited and created a system that is really not working for anyone anymore. How do we, how do we, how do we build something better? And that collaborative approach and that energy, um, I think is, is really critical for any, any industry as you build better. It's just, how do we, how do we build upon this? How do we make it better? What have we learned from the past? Um, where can we be more transparent? Um, what principles do we need to bring forward into business that maybe weren't there, you know, 20 or 50 years ago? Um, how do we make sure that there's a diversity of representation because of these unique experiences that we all have? Some of the most, um, some of the most siloed companies had the most homogenous boards, which is what you would totally expect. And so that homogenous board literally is putting you straight into a silo, which is so dangerous for your business model. 
And then, you know, when you look to how women influence household purchases, you know, it's not, you're not putting women on boards for sort of the tokenization of this. It's because we bring an entirely different experience. We've moved through the world in an entirely different body that has had an entirely different experience to every guy on that board. And that's an additive thing that's actually going to enhance the performance of that board. Um, and you see it with companies like Goldman Sachs saying, we will not take a company public unless there is a woman or a person of color on that board. And um, I think we're going to continue to see more of that. I mean, that's a really low bar that Goldman says, okay, one, but it's like the fact that they've actually said it. Um, you know, I think conferences and in any industry, it's like in order to participate in a conference, it would be great if there was just, you have to have this representation on your board. There has to be a certain number of women, you know, indigenous people, color, whatever it's going to be. Um, because I think that experience, that collective experience makes us so much stronger in the food industry, for sure, because we've created a very homogenous system and we discriminated against farmers of color, indigenous farmers, women, when it came to the lending process. So they didn't have access to the capital to farm with all the agrochemicals. And so they have stewarded the soil in a really responsible way. And that knowledge and that wisdom is actually really important to pull forward right now. And so again, it's like bringing back, bringing back that experience. And the way I sort of look at that is, you know, you can have one thread that's just this one homogenous thread or a fabric that is woven of all of these different colors and all of these different experiences. And that fabric is so much stronger. Um, and I think that's true. I think that's true for any industry. This, uh, you've used two, uh, two lovely kind of um, images there of this woven fabric and then also this idea of the, the individual singer and, and the choir. Uh, it seems like there's a, there's a real kind of genuine, not yearning, but just like willingness to, to collaborate, to, to, to integrate with others. And then the sense as well of which I really love, not approaching people with judgment, um, and having this curiosity for why other people are behaving the way they are, not only just in terms of business, but I, I think in personal relationships and even even handling um, handling kind of adversity within a relationship or disagreements or 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 pain. I, I think this curiosity is is really lacking at times in life in terms of just. Ah, instead of just you're the good guy and I'm the bad guy or vice versa, it's like, why? Like, right. why are we like this or why did it happen? Right. It doesn't, you know, the good guy, bad guy labels doesn't actually solve anything. And so, yeah. you know, uh, it's, it's more how can we explore what's going on here to then create something better. And, um, you know, that's really, to me, that's really the opportunity. And I think, with the headlines that we have today around climate and the environment and water and drought and all of these things that are terrifying, you know, it makes us all feel like we are just right on the edge of like this cliff. And, you know, I think for some people it's like, what's the point? You know, it's so doom and gloom. What's the point? And I look at that and I think, how lucky are we to be alive in this lifetime right now with the skills and the talent and the connectivity and the technology that we have right now to actually solve for this. We are, it's, it is, there has never been a time, I don't think in history where we have been presented with the opportunity to restore and heal these systems. 
And we see it in healthcare, we see it in education, we see it in our food system, we see it in agriculture. Um, and to really take, you know, systems that have been highly abusive and say, yes, okay, you know, these have been really abusive extractive systems. And how can we actually build this restorative, you know, stewardship and practice back into it? Um, and it's incredible. I think it's an incredible opportunity right now. I think technology is affording us an incredible opportunity in climate right now to heal, you know, some of these systems that have been really abusive and really ex extractive. Um, and, you know, that to me is the opportunity. That's what's exciting about this. And some of the most valuable lessons I've learned have come from people way outside of food and ag. You know, there are people in tech and there are people in advertising. And it's like to have those people around you that you're just literally like, you know, playing this intellectual ping pong with all the time. I mean, it's um, those are the best conversations and they're so much fun. And to really, instead of sort of sitting in a pity party and saying, oh my gosh, you know, this is terrible. And, you know, and that's, it's an easy place to be, you know, the opportunity is actually, you know, we are standing in front of this incredible opportunity um, to really have an amazing impact. And I think a lot about that, you know, like when you're 80 or 90 or whatever it's going to be, you know, to be able to look back and say, you know, we knew the food system was highly extractive. We knew that it was damaging human health, climate health, soil health, farmer health. And this is what we did. And I think, you know, with soil health, it is soil serves as an incredible carbon sink and it has the capacity to, to hold water and to hold carbon and to play this incredible role in climate. And I look at that like, why aren't we doing everything we can to support soil health in any industry? I don't care if you're a tech company, I don't care if you're a car company, I don't care if you're a shell. Like all companies stand on soil and all companies can play a role in that. Just something you mentioned there, even just in terms of the people that you kind of can collaborate with and have this, uh, you know, even to bounce people uh, or ideas off people from different uh, backgrounds, whether it's tech or advertising and, and just the richness that comes from that. I know you mentioned earlier the idea that, you know, such an important part of life is, is who you surround yourself with. And then this, this expression you have both in terms of supporting other women in, uh, in leadership roles, and then just how, what you love to know about the people that are surrounding you, like the sentiment that I've got your back. Was that, was that a lesson that you've learned from, uh, you, as you've moved through life with the experiences, um, and the challenges that you face, or, or has that always been something that's been, been pretty ne uh, near and dear to you? I think because I know what it felt like to walk alone and not feel that people had my back, I know how important it is, what it can do to a leader's confidence and their ability to move with conviction quickly if they feel that someone has their back. And I think given the urgency of where we are with climate, that's probably one of the most important things um, that we can express to each other is how can I have your back? What do you need to feel that I have your back? And when you ask it in that way, people usually are able to tell you right away. It's like, oh, I've got this one board member that's really toxic. I need help getting this person off the board. Okay, let's figure out what needs to happen. Who, what capital do we need to bring in? What can we create here to solve for this? Um, and I, no, I didn't. I think that is, that's been one of the lessons for sure that I've learned. Um, that was born out of the early years of, of that isolation. And this sense then of emboldening other people to, to be braver, I, I was just, how, how do you 
just for for so many I'm, I'm sure people listening like how, how do you kind of elevate people or support people to this you know I'm, I'm sure if someone is listening and maybe even they've listened to the point where you've said like oh the universe is probably giving you hints or even calling you to to what it is you want to do when you're when you're dealing with or when you're engaging with new people or um, new teams and and you know taking on considerable challenges like you've even taken on, how do you kind of how do you enhance that uh, for people to or create the environment, the circumstances? Um, I know you mentioned having their back, but are there are there other things that you look to yeah to I think I think in terms of yeah I think. Um... I think we think of courage as this like huge monumental thing. You know, you've got to have these just like loud, audacious acts of courage. Um, And those are probably some of the most visible. Um, But, you know, courage can be as brave as deciding you're going to start meditating one day. Or courage can be, you know, you're going to wear some crazy loud pants that you've always loved, but you've always been afraid to wear out in public. It doesn't need to be these giant things. Um, and I think when we have actually these little moments of bravery and these little moments of courage, um, it builds the courage muscle. You know, that's how I feel. There's this yeah. muscle. And so, you know, it's not just like you don't just go out and lift like 500 pounds and like that's it. There's the muscle. You know, it's like you start small and it builds and you can lift heavier and heavier and heavier. I think of courage the same way in that muscle. And so it's, you know, where in these little ways can you be brave with your life? If there is someone that you, you know, feel has made a profound impact on your life, can you be brave enough to write them a letter and thank them? You know, if there is someone who has been really challenging you in your life, can you be brave enough to really sit down and say, like, how are we going to resolve this conflict? Um, You know, if there's something you've always wanted to do, learn something, learn to play the guitar, can you be brave enough to start? Um, And I think those little acts of courage then become bigger acts of courage. I, I absolutely love this. And even just the sentiments you're sharing there in terms of keeping the kind of slate clean. I've I've uh, I've interviewed a couple of ladies who work with the dying recently and you know, people people hold on to relationships that haven't been set straight. Uh they hold on to that stuff for decades. And it kind of, you know, when you t- talk earlier about this idea of what's what's uh, extracting and what's nourishing and, and the, just what you described there in terms of like about showing um, a gratitude for the love that's in your life, but then also, you know, if, if things aren't going all right in a certain situation, to be brave enough to name it. And I love this. Uh, I think this is such an important idea in terms of small acts of courage and um, kind of perpetually building it like we would a muscle in the gym or like mm-hmm. we would our sense of mindfulness or awareness by repeatedly sitting down to meditate. I, I think this is absolutely lovely. There's so many things you've, you've shared Robin in terms of things that contribute to to a good life in, in terms of you know your very opening statement like how can I be the how can I serve almost or be the highest expression of service how can I you know how can I bestow the gifts that I've been given um, from the uh, from the universe from God back into the back into the world uh, you know so many ideas around God-given talents and and kind of even authenticity I think even within it's not somebody else's uh, talents that you're trying to emulate. You're just trying to be all of yourself by the sounds of it. A very clear sense of like intentionality. This also the sense you have of, of silencing the noise and using fear almost as a, as a guide, not something that deters you from doing something, but know that you're getting close to it. 
Um, also this lovely idea you had as well of accepting and not numbing the, the, the emotions you're experiencing in life, the difficulty you're experiencing it, having, having the, the, the fortitude to be able to go, there is a lesson in this, um, somewhere uh, in this somewhere for me, you know, to the ideas of giving back to having uh, a good community of people around you. And then to also to extend that service to, to other people as well. And then just a, a number of things around courage, collaboration, and creativity. And you've shared so many things that have you've seemed to have almost earned in terms of experiences in life, distilling lessons, and then having the courage then to to take that on further for yourself as well. So, just in terms of everything you've shared, uh, how would you describe what is it? What is a good life for you, Robin? You know, I love to garden and listening to you talk, and I've thought about this before too, is that, you know, when we plant a seed, it's planted in darkness, it's buried and planted in darkness. And then it it literally has to crack. And then from that, you know, with water and sunlight and the nutrients from the soil, it grows and becomes this beautiful thing, flower, a plant, a vegetable, whatever it is in the garden. Um And that's what I would think it would be. And then, you know, in that cycle, when it's done, it goes back into the soil and it supports whatever's going to come after it. And, you know, to me, that's the cycle. Um, So, you know, my last words of wisdom would be, don't be afraid of the darkness. You know, maybe you are being buried to grow and become something that is going to blossom into something that you can't possibly foresee when you are in that darkness. Um, And I think, you know, really surrounding yourself and nourishing yourself with the right people, with the right foods, with the right hydration, um, the right partnerships, you know, the right colleagues, um, really making sure that you have that supportive scaffolding around you just the way in a garden, you would maybe put things around a plant as they grow, um, is very much the opportunity and that none of us get through this by ourselves. And that was never the point. And it was never the point to be like anyone else. You know, it is, it is. The, the opportunity is to show up in your most authentic, truest way, because to me, I think that's where you will have the greatest impact and be of the highest service. Well, I, I love this. There's something extremely comforting about this with this kind of analogy of the seed and the darkness and being buried and it cracking in order to grow. Um, I don't know, there's some there's something about that. And just even, I know even just your pursuit, but there's something almost very natural about how you're describing life and both the observations of our emotional weather at times and then even just this process of growth as well. Uh, so I'll... I'll, I'll be taking so much from this conversation, Robin, and just to say thank you so much for for joining me here on on the What Is a Good Life podcast today. It's been a real pleasure. No, oh, thanks so much for having me, Mark. You know, I was just thinking when I was younger, like you know, thirty or thirty five years ago, I used to try to protect my heart from breaking. I thought that would be the end of me if my heart broke. And my perspective on that now is your heart has to break. It has to break to make room for everything that's meant to fit inside. 
And I really stand by that. I really, truly believe that the heartache that I was so afraid of when I was younger ended up being the thing that opened my heart to make room for everything that was meant to be inside. Uh, I, I think that's absolutely magic. Um, I am a firm believer in that often the situations we're trying to avoid are the things that we actually need, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? 100%, yeah. And we just, you know, we may not want them right now, but uh, that's uh, that resonates very much with my, my own experience and my own thoughts in life as well. Um, Robin, uh, thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm very, very grateful that you joined me here in the What Is A Good Life podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. It's been really fun talking to you.